Well, welcome to this episode of When Science Makes History. Today we'll be discussing immortal cells, so stay tuned. Hello, listeners. Let me just take this opportunity to say a quick word of thanks for not only listening, but for the feedback. It's always appreciated. This podcast was never intended to make me famous or make money. It's simply a labor of love. It's more of a, hey, did you know that? podcast than an attempt to become popular, so I hope it expands your knowledge and that you enjoy listening. If so, mission accomplished. You see, a lot of this grew out of copious reading and an observation from education where everything seems to be compartmentalized and even hyper-compartmentalized. I believe that practice is somewhat of a disservice as it causes us to miss the big picture, the integral portions that make up the whole, and the occasional serendipity that we see in hindsight. Learning's not just a series of islands that we hop from one to the next. It's more of a continent, and we get to explore it as we move further and further from our own home. Here, I'm just trying to bring things together to allow listeners the opportunity to increase their dialogue with their family, their coworkers, their friends, and even a stranger you meet. To that end, I'm intentionally keeping the social media footprint very small. Yes, agreed. That's partly because I don't like social media, partly because I'm not very adept at using it, but really, predominantly, I see value in and want to encourage face-to-face conversations and dialogue rather than insta-snap-a-chat a Twittergram. Sure, the podcast needs work, I need better artwork, some background music, and even possibly sound effects. Someday. And of course, I am open to suggestions. So, just wanted to say thanks for listening, and I truly appreciate your support of this podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram. Yes, that is social media, I suppose, at When Science Makes History. And be sure to reach out if there are other topics you want to see or hear mentioned on this podcast. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome to this episode of When Science Makes History. Today we'll be talking about immortal cells. The average human has about 100 trillion cells that make us, well, ourselves. These include liver cells, kidney cells, nerve cells, skin cells, hair cells, and the list goes on. These cells have their own little lives as they are born, per se, grow, reproduce, and eventually die. Our mortal frames are composed of continuously changing subunits called cells, which, when functioning correctly, grow carry out their function, and then die. Let's take a simple one, for example, an erythrocyte, a red blood cell. Each red blood cell is formed in our bone marrow, grows, enters the bloodstream, carries out its function of oxygen and CO2 transport for its approximately four-month lifespan. After it has outlived its usefulness, it is processed in our liver and spleen where the iron is recycled and the remnants discarded. Most cells which make up our frame are undergoing similar birth, life, death cycles. Our skin is believed to change every month or so, hair every four or five years, and the most regenerative tissue in our bodies, the intestinal lining, is every seven days. If you recall the ship of Theseus paradox, this asks the metaphysical question that if every part of a ship is replaced on its voyage until none of the original parts remain, Is it the same ship? In a sense, if you pause long enough to think about it, we are a biological version of the ship of Theseus, composed of cells continuously changing to make us new every so many weeks or months. So, are we really ourselves after all the parts have been replaced? 
Now, while we all aspire towards immortality, we recognize the reality of such is not likely. We are creatures with finite lifespans. We are beings composed of cells, and our demise is due in large part to the individual cells that make us us not being able to replicate forever. As they break down and wear out, they are replaced. If their replacement is an exact duplicate or a clone, life continues. What about when that replication process or replacement process doesn't go according to plan? Well, some of those questions will be answered in this episode, as well as some curious, disturbing, and fascinating tidbits of science and history in this podcast entitled Immortal Cells on When Science Makes History. So stay tuned to this episode to learn more. Cancer is a heinous disease. Normal cells, according to biological principles, can only divide a finite number of times. Cancer, in its simplest form, arises when cells which should be about making a limited number of clones of themselves to fill in older replacements go off according to their own agenda. Often this means they start making duplicates of themselves in overabundance and without an apparent end. It's akin to the accelerator on a car getting stuck mashed to the floor. The accelerator is a normal and necessary part of the vehicle, but as a car operator you want to be able to control it. Imagine driving down the highway and the accelerator sticks to the floor in full accelerate mode. Something bad is going to happen. This essentially describes cancer. The cellular machinery has the accelerator stuck to the floor and is making new cells without stopping. Something bad is going to happen. This overabundance of cells forms a mass, or lump of cells called a tumor, and these tumors can be either benign or malignant. Benign tumors tend not to invade nearby areas and simply grow in place, whereas malignant tumors tend to grow much quicker and invade surrounding areas. Hence, etymologically, malignant means bad, evil, malicious. Chemicals and radiation can be used to push back this onslaught of rapidly reproducing cells, but alas, these agents also affect healthy cells nearby. This, incidentally, is why chemotherapy, the therapeutic use of chemicals, affects an individual's hair growth and gives them nausea. The cells of hair follicles and the cells of intestinal lining are aggressive reproducers, which is why intestinal lining is replaced every seven days and hair is continuously growing. This rapid reproduction means when chemotherapeutic agents are killing cancer cells, well, they're also killing these intestinal lining and follicle cells, causing the hair to fall out and nausea to occur. Once a group of cells is stuck in this cancerous on position, and reproducing without abandon, there is really no good way of stopping this. This is why we have the cure for cancer as the holy grail of medical science. So what causes cells to get stuck in the accelerate mode? Well, that's a topic longer than could be adequately covered here, but there are some well-known substances and even events that cause the cellular machinery to go awry. Radiation, that's a common one. X-rays can bombard the DNA and cause errors. See episode one with Sutomu Yamaguchi. We're all familiar with the cancer-causing chemicals in cigarette tobacco and in several other chemicals termed carcinogens, or carcinogenic. There's also the genetic predisposition to cancer. So in short, chemicals, radiation, and genetics tend to be carcinogenic, or generators of cancer, as the name implies. Cells also need to be together to survive. A single cell removed from the whole biological system cannot survive, cancerous or otherwise. They need the necessary chemical signals, nutrients, water, temperature, etc. to thrive. Since the discovery of the cell, the ability to have cells capable of growing outside the organism 
has been sought after and a point of curiosity that drove cellular science for years. It was the proverbial quest for the fountain of youth, with some scientists envisioning rooms full of organs ready for transplantation grown from cells taken from kidneys, livers, hearts, and lungs, all made possible by cells growing within specialized cultures. You see, it was believed if you could simply take a kidney cell and grow it in the right culture, eventually a whole kidney could be formed. Unfortunately, or fortunately, this is not the case. Cells can live in specially prepared cultures outside of an organism, but they eventually die and don't produce the full organ as the early scientists had hoped. The term is in vitro, from the Latin for in glass. In vitro cell cultures are groups of cells capable of living outside the parent organism, as they have all the necessary conditions for their growth in the glass, tube, or petri dish, hence in vitro. Eventually, these cell cultures will also expire and a new one will need to be obtained. As an aside, the term in vitro probably became familiar in social vocabulary with the in vitro fertilization producing what was called a test tube baby, which occurred in 1978. Basically, a sperm cell and an egg cell are brought together in glass in a petri dish, then implanted into a surrogate. The baby never was grown in a test tube, as some alarmists of the time had speculated. In the 1950s, something radical occurred. Cells which could live in a culture and appeared to be growing, reproducing, and thriving in vitro or in glass were discovered. These were called immortal cells, as they didn't eventually die like other previous cell lines had. In 1951, the first truly immortal cells were discovered. Cells that could live in a prepared culture outside of a human being seemingly indefinitely. The quest for cells which could live indefinitely outside the parent organism became reality as a cluster of cells taken from a living human being were shown to be living, growing, and reproducing in a test tube. In vitro, immortal cells. This was huge. This discovery, however, was and remains wrapped in controversy. Since that time, other immortal cell lines have been discovered and they too are also wrapped in controversy. When we return, we'll look at where these cells came from and their ongoing presence with us today, some 70 years later. Well, here we are, a number of episodes in, and I seem to be surviving making my own podcast, contrary to my initial fears. When it came to making my own podcast, I had plenty of content and plenty more to come, but was quite intimidated by the whole recording a podcast hurdle. Anchor, however, made that part of this process rather easy. They have everything you need all in one place. Let me explain. You see, Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. I've actually used both my phone and my computer to record podcast episodes. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on multiple listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Seriously. Yet, best of all, Anchor's totally free. It really is. There's no risk of, ooh, I purchased this piece of software. I hope it works. If this podcast isn't successful and I have to shut it down, I've wasted a lot of money. So let me encourage you to download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and make your own podcast with the help of Anchor. Welcome back to this episode of When Science Makes History. We're covering immortal cells, cells that can live in a culture outside of the parent organism seemingly indefinitely. Specifically, we're looking at human immortal cells. So, where did the first immortal cells come from? 
These remarkable cells were taken from a patient with a cancerous tumor in her cervix, a cervical carcinoma. The patient's name was Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta was a 30-year-old black lady living just below the Mason-Dixon line in Baltimore, Maryland. The historical context of this cannot be underestimated. Henrietta was a young, colored lady living in the 1950s, a mother of five children, her first of which she had at the age of 14. In our present day, some of these facets can be intentionally ignored or overlooked, but in the historical context of Henrietta and her life, they should not be. I just want to pause here and encourage the reading of two texts if this topic intrigues you. One entitled, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Sklut, and the second, Henrietta Lacks, The Untold Story by Ron Lacks. These are opposing viewpoints, to be sure. One from a scientific journalist and one from the grandson of Henrietta Lacks. They're both worthy reads and will allow you, the listener, to decide their opinions on the matter. I do feel compelled to mention the historical context as well. There is only one race, the human race, and we do well to remember our common bond as fellow human beings and do even better to treat those we come in contact with as we would want to be treated. Lastly, I encourage you to read The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson to gain a contextual foothold of the American experience at the time Henrietta lived. I do suggest a fair bit of reading as this topic is controversial and one fraught with errors and misunderstandings from numerous fronts. In this, I tried my best to pen this carefully, but the history is messy, so back to Henrietta. Henrietta Lacks was born in 1920 and grew up in Clover, Virginia. Her mom passed away when she was only four after giving birth to her 10th child. Henrietta's subsequent childhood was therefore an understandable conglomeration of siblings, cousins, aunts, and uncles. She even eventually married a cousin and had her first of five children at the age of 14. Again, you need to keep historical context in mind and not evaluate this considering contemporary 21st century culture. To make a long story short, later in her life she noticed a knot in her abdomen which eventually required medical attention. The nearby Johns Hopkins University Hospital was regarded with some measure of suspicion by colored folks of that area and with good reason considering the Tuskegee study which later came to light in the 1970s verifying the poor treatment of blacks by white doctors. Obviously, no association with Johns Hopkins, but the suspicion was well understood. In other words, to be suspicious that all was not on the up and up by white medical doctors who were treating colored individuals was a wise and, no pun intended, healthy suspicion at this time. Again, be aware of the historical context. After much physical pain and mental anguishing, Henrietta conceded and eventually visited Johns Hopkins Hospital, where she was treated in the colored section of the hospital in the poor wards. Here, a Dr. Howard Jones diagnosed Henrietta as having a cancerous tumor on her cervix and as standard protocol at that time and today, a sample biopsy of these cells were taken. Following this, she underwent a series of radiation treatments over the next several months, which included inserting glass tubes containing radium to bombard the tumor with radiation. Despite this and prolonged months of treatment, Henrietta unfortunately succumbed to the cancer, dying on October 4th, 1951. That biopsy of cells taken from Henrietta before she passed away, that led to a monumental discovery. So what happened to those biopsy cells? Well, they were sent down to the lab where a cell biologist named George Guy had been trying for years to find a group of cells that could live on outside the patient and be useful for testing. That biopsy would be the source of not only the immortal cell line, but a lengthy controversy as well over the following decades. 
Patient consent was not what it is today. Let's first keep that in mind. Taking those cells was not necessarily problematic. It is what was done following the biopsy, or more specifically, what was done after the cells were discovered to be immortal that was controversial. After Henrietta passed away, her cells continued to live on in vitro. After George Guy deposited the cells into the hands of his lab assistant, she reluctantly placed them into a culture, believing they would eventually die like the hundreds of previous samples had, but surprisingly they did not. They, in fact, replicated, practically doubling every 24 hours. Here were Henrietta Lacks' cells replicating endlessly in culture medium, in vitro, day after day. It gets a little tricky here, but let's just lay out the history as it occurred per my research. George Guy, intrigued with these endlessly replicating cells, began giving them to other scientists for their research as it seemed his supply was going to be virtually endless. Give a vial away, and another vial would be ready to go in a few days. They were sent via mail, handed off at dinner parties, driven by car, and flown by airplane. Consequently, Henrietta's cells moved around the world rather quickly and even managed a few trips outside the world traveling into outer space, demonstrating they could grow in zero gravity. This was admittedly a wild west of sorts in the cellular world. These cells were simply called HeLa cells, as mandatory anonymity wasn't a protocol at the time, and were passed off free of charge to those who wanted to do research with human cells. It likely goes without saying, but HeLa comes from the first two initials of her first and last names, Henrietta Lacks, and the immortal cell line of Henrietta Lacks from there forward in history becomes known as the HeLa cell line. As a result of her cells, discoveries surrounding cell reproduction, cancer, the role of viruses in cancer, somatic cell fusion, these discoveries became regular and occurred quickly. This somewhat cavalier attitude means HeLa cells were on a rather long leash and soon contaminated other research as being cells they could literally travel in the air or on other labware. Eventually, HeLa cells also began to become a billable item and were seemingly now for sale. Today, you can purchase a modified culture of these cells for about $500. Again, you have to keep in mind that many of the procedures and protocols of present medical science didn't exist, and some now exist because of some of the practices that were occurring at this time. Eventually, a worldwide mass of these cells existed with more growing all the time. Why? Why try to grow these cells? What's the purpose behind that? Well, most were and still are used in research. Sending these cells to space allowed researchers to investigate what cells do in zero gravity and how they are affected by space radiation. They were used in the development of the polio vaccine, as well as to investigate how the salmonella bacteria affects cells. They have been used to investigate the way Ebola affects cells. Most of all, these cancer cells have been used to research cancer itself, with numerous discoveries including the role viruses play in cancer. Other immortal cell lines have since been discovered and are prolifically used in scientific and medical research. These may derive from monkey kidneys, hamster ovaries, rat cells, and yes, even human cells other than HeLa cells, as in the case of HEK or HEK cells, which are derived from a human embryonic kidney cell. The latter also creating controversy as they were derived from a spontaneous miscarriage or an abortion of a female fetus that occurred in 1973. Granted, many of the immortal cell lines of today have been genetically modified to be such. Cytologists, or those that study the cell, have since learned how to massage and manipulate cells to become immortal. 
Yet here were HeLa cells doing this all on their own. Please understand, this is not intended to be a story of white racist doctors working their evil on a poor innocent black woman as some would purport. This is about when science makes history, and not for simply aligning with the title to this podcast. This is a story of well-intentioned scientists who set about scientific practice, shared it with the world, and then realized there were some grave errors in personal dignity, worth, and familial responsibility that were overlooked, and they have subsequently been trying to mend these. That, after all, is how we should treat our fellow beings. We now have rather well-established, stringent bioethical standards that have come about as a result of this era, and these standards are continually evaluated to ensure ethical, dignified, and scientific work is being done. When good attentions go awry and others are affected, look to mend the tear. Johns Hopkins has been doing the same and have done much to preserve the legacy of Henrietta Lacks. The hospital has developed programs, buildings, and memorials honoring her legacy and provides the following statement on their webpage honoring Henrietta Lacks. Quote, Although these were the first cells that could be easily shared and multiplied in a lab setting, Johns Hopkins has never sold or profited from the discovery or distribution of HeLa cells and does not own the rights to the HeLa cell line. Rather, Johns Hopkins offered HeLa cells freely and widely for scientific research. Johns Hopkins applauds and regularly participates in efforts to raise awareness of the life and story of Henrietta Lacks. Having reviewed our interactions with Henrietta Lacks and with the Lacks family over more than 50 years, we found that Johns Hopkins could have and should have done more to inform and work with members of Henrietta Lacks's family out of respect for them, their privacy, and their personal interests. Though the collection and use of Henrietta Lacks's cells in research was an acceptable and legal practice in the 1950s, such a practice would not happen today without the patient's consent, end quote. So, what about HeLa cells today? HeLa cells have been cultured continuously since 1951. Their total mass, if collected in one location, would be over 50 million tons. Staggering. In fact, it's likely you have encountered these cells in some manner over the course of your life. And there you have it. A tobacco farmer's daughter growing up on the Mason-Dixon line in the 1940s, protecting you from polio today, and the cells used in that research are still replicating today. That is when science makes history. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In our next episode, we'll do a deep dive into ethanol and how it gave us NASCAR. So please subscribe to the podcast and be sure to get the most recent episode of When Science Makes History.